Hello, you're listening to Social Science Talk Science Fiction, a podcast where social scientists, researchers, theorists and philosophers discuss the themes and works of science fiction. This podcast is recorded in the basement of the International Politics Department at Aberystwyth University and is available free under a Creative Commons license. If you'd like to see or hear more from us, check out the website at socialsciencetalks.wordpress.com, subscribe on iTunes or tweet at social underscore sci-fi. We hope you enjoy the programme. Okay, so uh, we're still here at BISA. I'm talking to George Loffelman from Warwick University, and he's giving a paper entitled The Pentagon versus Aliens, which is possibly my favourite titled paper of the entire conference. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, thanks for having me. Uh, and tell us about your paper. Um, well, basically, um, the research on sort of the Pentagon Hollywood liaison is a part of like a larger research um, that I did on um, discourses of grand strategy. Grand strategy is normally understood as it is about means and ends, how do we use uh, military power mostly for national security, and I'm doing basically a critical inversion of this, and I'm looking at this from a discursive perspective, and I'm basically saying, how is this big picture um, of geopolitics of national security created? And here, um, popular culture is one of the sites where conceptualizations of geopolitics of national identity is being created and recreated and where there's a back and forth between you know, the world of everyday common sense experience and, and politics. And we see these um, in films like you know, Iron Man 2 and The Avengers where we have sort of this identity of American exceptionalism embodied literally in that militarized superhero, you know, Iron Man's armor, Captain America clad in the stars and stripes. Um, but on the other side, we also have a very practical component to this. In, for example, that the um, Pentagon, the U.S. Department of Defense, is supporting films like Transformers 2 with F-16 fighter jets and tanks and even up to aircraft carriers because these films basically reproduce the same discourse that the Pentagon uses in its own strategy papers about it's a dangerous, volatile world out there and basically America and American military power is the only thing that keeps the evildoers at bay. Which is literally the lesson of Iron Man. <laughs> exactly. So, I, mean, I guess there's an inherent tension in that sci-fi is there as a sandbox. It allows us to create worlds which play by certain rules that we can then have interesting conversations about. But when those in a position of power, and in the case of the US military position of violent power, use it to create worlds in which their truisms apply. So you can create a supervillain whose only solution is exceptionalism. Um, a non-sci-fi example would be uh, Jack Bauer, for whom torture is always necessary and successful. Um, there's potentially a huge problem, therefore, in having a military-industrial pop culture complex. Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, when you, when you look at the um, statements of the, um, the Department of Defense and the individual service industries, you see that they quote accuracy and realism as the categories that they apply when they decide should we support a film or not. But when you look at the films that they actually support, then the vast majority of them are science fiction vehicles like Battleship, Transformers, Battle Los Angeles, which basically creates the perfect enemy to fight and win against, which is the alien invader, who comes as a soft-swidden soft attack over the United States. There's no blow, uh, blowback, no backstory. It's just the despotic other against which the militarized heroism can be displayed, American exceptionalism, versus realistic depictions of for example, the Hurt Locker in Iraq, 
um, did not get support by the Pentagon because there was a renegade bomb specialist who was clearly traumatized by the experience of war and this was not deemed fit a realistic or authentic portrayal of warfare. Another good example would be Crimson Tide where the US Navy is very supportive of the film and Bruckheimer's efforts until he finally has to let them read the script and they discover it's about mutiny on a nuclear submarine and suddenly that's a problem. Um, Absolutely. I think my, my favorite example is the Cuban Missile Crisis, the film 13 Days, where the um, Air Force and the Pentagon refused to support this because they thought the uh, portrayal of uh, General Curtis Ely May was too warmongering and bellicose. When he was known as Bombs Away. <laughs> yes, and uh, President Kennedy recorded his conversations with Lee May, and they could basically say word for word what was in the script was actually what the general had said. And still, the Pentagon uh, preferred to make its own reality and its own history, essentially, of national security. So, so, two heroes you brought up examples of, which I'm going to tease out in interesting ways, are Iron Man and Captain America. Because Captain America, he, he's literally the American flag walking around with superpowers. He is. And yet in the comics, and to an extent in the films, he's seen there as a representation of what America should be in stark opposition to what it actually is. So in the comic books he quits because he doesn't like Nixon, or in the second Captain America film, there's overtly, I mean, it's about drones. And he overtly has the conversation with Samuel L. Jackson that drones are bad, as is being able to just assassinate people who are suspects, not people who are found guilty. And the interesting thing is, while you'd expect Captain America to be the ultimate patriot, in the comics at least, the ultimate patriot during the Cold War was Iron Man. His sole job was going around beating up communists. How do you think that sort of raw patriotism was translated into the modern era? I think when you, when you look at it, then Iron Man is sort of the quintessential neoliberal hero. He is an industrialist, a CEO, a self-made man, a genius inventor, and he basically embodies this you know, belief in progress, technological sophistication, and basically capitalism and the military industrial complex. Versus Captain America being from like a previous era, you know, from the 1930s and 1940s, if you, if you like, he's a child of the New Deal America, Franklin Delano Roosevelt's America. He has a different, more Republican, you know, conceptualiz conceptualization of America. And I think the Winter Soldier, the second Captain America, taps into this very interestingly by basically pitting Captain America on the side of freedom versus the security apparatus, which also shows that occasionally Hollywood can puncture that narrative of American exceptionalism, military supremacy, and global hegemony, but only if sort of America's innocence can be redeemed through the individual hero, you know, the Western, the cowboy on the Western frontier, the individual secret agent, he then brings back the innocence that was lost through institutional corruption or the CIA or other sort of dark outlets of American so, superpower. In both the first Iron Man film and the second Captain America film, the villains are bad Americans, but the heroes are good Americans. Yes. And, and they don't, so the problem is not that, you know, Stark builds a whole bunch of weapons, it's that bad people give those weapons to more bad people, and that so long as we can somehow keep the weapons in the hands of the good people, this is okay, which sort of fundamentally seems to undermine its own message. Exactly, and the heroic intentions cleanse basically the entire mission, cleanse the entire operation, and the virtues of the hero, um, you know, brings the evildoer to justice, and there's no systemic critique of, you know, for example, capitalism or militarism. Which, interestingly, and this is... So one of the phenomena of comic books is that different writers in different editions will treat characters in fundamentally different ways. And you could argue that's not fundamentally true of the most recent Age of Ultron, where Stark's intent to, again, it's about drone warfare, that appears to be issue de jour, his intent that this is a good idea just 
it's not even given credence because it turns out to be a terrible idea, oddly enough, creating self-aware AI, uh, where AI always goes wrong. And we've spoken a lot on this podcast about modern science fiction and its distrusted technology. And what I particularly liked about Age of Ultron is that the length of time between I'm going to create an AI that can defend the entire world on its own and it's all going horribly wrong is about ten minutes because the, the filmmakers are aware that the audience know the arc this is going to take that we're, we're inherently distrustful of technology and sci-fi and I think this is again a, a reflection of real world national security phenomenon not only uh, you know a growing uneasiness about drone, drone warfare and collateral damage, but also about the, the NSA revelations of Edward Snowden and the global surveillance and security apparatus that we have created in this you know, paranoia following 9-11 and the war on terror is now basically coming back, coming back home, coming back to the home front. And I think these films are reflections of these, um, of these discourses that are starting to happen in America, I think, at the moment. I think potentially the most effective critique of that came in the third Iron Man film where Iron Man's traditional supervillain is the Mandarin who's this terribly racist caricature from the previous era you couldn't do and so instead the very clever gag is that the Mandarin doesn't exist instead he's this fictional creation of the ultimate boogeyman for American news corporations and defense contractors and so you have a film which is part of the American military industrial pop culture complex creating its own fictional piece of pop culture as part of that complex itself. And then at the end, Tony blows up all his suits because apparently he learns his lesson. And then there's no transition between that and the next Avengers film. And the suit is back. And the weapons are back. And again, we see the undercutting of its own message. No, absolutely. I mean, I think with, with, with the Mandarin, even if you have like a loyal sort of like you know, a comic book fan base, there are certain things you can't really get away anymore in like, you know, like even like a modern like Hollywood sense, especially when you think that fifty percent of you know, the market for these films is, is overseas and China oh, yes. is, 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 is is also like a, a coming and ever more important um, market. But I think also there are some certain divergence, for example. When you look at the SHIELD um, organization, it is nominally an international body under the control of the United Nations, although it's never quite clear. But the existence of SHIELD sort of above and beyond the national chain of command was the reason the Pentagon could not support um, the uh, Avengers, but they could um, support Transformers because in Transformers it's clear this is the US Army, this is the US Air Force, this is not some sort of like unclear super spy organization, this is the United States President defending, you know, the globe basically. The, the, the need to world build has sort of created a, a strange version of events in that if you look at things like S.H.I.E.L.D. or G, the G.I. Joe organization, within their original um, versions, they weren't childlike, but they were significantly simpler in the way they were portrayed. Whereas now, with a modern film, you have to look at those organizations and think how they fit into the chain of command. And when you realize that it's a super-powered special ops team who go around the world killing bad guys with no democratic oversight, to quote Bob Chipman, it's, that sounds like the sort of thing that would make Dick Cheney go Super Saiyan. <laughs> he, he'd love it. No, and I think, uh, again, in the la latest Age of Ultron, they, they actually touch uh, upon this a little bit. They're, they're basically all like severely traumatized uh, individuals. I mean, government killers, a, a behemoth monster that like questions its own humanity. Even, you know, Captain America, who is sort of like is on the surface the most like wholesome and holistic, is um, displaced in time. So this is not exactly 
the the poster child of like a you know, like more innocent greatest generation. These are very like traumatized uh, specialists. And when you look at you know the stories from you know um, special operations operative SEAL team members that um, have the same experience, again I think we see reflections of the reality of national security seeping into what is supposed to be just a hero versus bad guy narrative. So you mentioned sort of China coming into this sort of narrative a lot more, and I think that definitely comes out in these sort of films. You see the Transformers films transitioning very clearly from hooray American military to a very competent Chinese military and a strangely incompetent American military. Um, Iron Man 3 not only rewrote its Asian villain, but there's a Chinese edition of the film which is only shown in China. And with the Doctor Strange film, it's now very likely they're going to take out a Tibetan character and replace them with a white character. This, of course, is because um, only 40 Western films get released in China every year. 20 of them are in 3D. Um, so if you're a big blockbuster, you, don't, you want that market. How is this going to be a big change? How else is it going to... I think are we going to see competing complexes between China and America? I think, I think the, the political economy of this um, clearly plays a role. And when you think about a film like Armageddon, for example, in 1998, I think, you know, 10 American astronauts and oil drillers fly up to, like, blow up an asteroid and save the world. If this movie would be remade, half the crew would be Chinese nowadays, I think. It is very clearly that you will see adaptations of these representations of heroism that will account for the global market, you know, redistribution. So you might have like, you know, like, and also like the discussion of like a more multipolar DG20 world. So there might be like a Brazilian guy on board, you know, maybe like a couple of Chinese. So I think what the, the heroism aspect and this exceptionalism aspect will be maintained, but America will sort of try to branch out in sort of franchises of exceptionalism in these movie vehicles. I mean, a couple of days ago I was speaking to Alexandra Martins and she was talking about how the idea of the hero in Chinese storytelling is very, very different. I mean, if we take two examples, American heroes often have guns because it's how you give a normal person power. But compare that to the martial arts film simply entitled Hero, the most heroic thing the hero does is to sacrifice himself for the idea of the greater good in the state. Um, and so you could argue that the idea of superheroes as we see them portrayed in the American complex might be fundamentally incompatible with big-budget Chinese filmmaking. Oh yeah, I mean, if, if we are talking about um, Chinese productions and a Chinese approach um, to this, I think we will see uh, quite different narratives because a different cultural tradition, a different um, strategic culture, strategic thinking. So um, it will actually be interesting to see if American producers can be successful by just simply plugging in other nations into this narrative or if this will be rejected by other markets and other audiences. Well, of course, the, the attempts to do that, which was very successful in getting a sequel, was Pacific Rim. And um, Pacific Rim is, uh, is not a particularly sophisticated movie, but it's a very, very, very well-made movie. And of course, there's one American bot, one Chinese bot, one Russian bot, one Australian bot. And uh, the, the characterizations are really broad. I mean, effectively, the Australian one is Crocodile Dundee, but a giant <laughs> robot. And uh, they, 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 they shout, crikey, look at the size of that monster. But there's now a, the director of House of Flying Daggers, whose name has temporarily escaped me, has been given a budget to make the most expensive film in Chinese history, and it's a Chinese version of Pacific Rim, set during the, the construction of the Great Wall, where they're building the wall to fight off monsters, and apparently Matt Damon's going to be in it. So it seems like we are seeing this brave new world of, of hero and action movies played out for a world market. Absolutely, and I think um, one should never like underestimate the ability of like Hollywood to like take foreign cultural influences, feed them into this 
machine that has been perfected over the last 100 years for storytelling and marketing and licensing and, and turn it into profit. Well, I mean, famously, Star Wars is a mashup of Kurosawa samurai films and British World War II films. And yet is one of the most American cultural artifacts we have. Which was also just screened in China, I believe, for the first time at a film festival, which well, had very mixed reviews. <laughs> I, th- I, think, I think that brings us neatly full circle. Um, uh, George Loffelman, thank you very much for your time. Oh, thanks for having me.